Let's pray together. Father, you are glorious and infinite and holy and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and yet somehow you look down upon us and you see man who you have made from the dirt, who has the audacity to rebel against you. You see us tempted and falling to that temptation over and over and over and over again. And so out of that steadfast love, you send your son. And so I pray as we open up Matthew 4 today, as we open up your word, we would see him as glorious. And we would see our lives hidden away in him, and we would never leave or live another day not in light of his life, and that we would leave this place changed eternally, and that we would grasp him, and we would have faith in him, and we would see our temptations that we battle minute by minute as being battled in light of his ultimate victory. We pray that your son would be exalted and that your name would be made much of as we look at your holy word. We thank you for it and we pray in your son's holy name. Amen. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew and we're making our way through the different sections. We started off by looking at what's often called the infancy narrative, right? a nice fun genealogy, and then looking at uh, angels coming to Joseph and Jesus, being born in a manger, and then having to run away from kings that were trying to kill him. And then we fast forward about 30 years, and we see the one preparing the way for him. We saw John the Baptist preparing the way for the kingdom, and we saw last week Jesus actually arriving on the scene and being baptized, and the heavens being opened up, and the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased in the Spirit descending on him, and right now we're at the cusp of his ministry, where we're at today. The beginning of chapter 4, we're right at the beginning of his ministry as the Spirit has now descended, truth about him, who he is, has been proclaimed. There's one more thing to go through before the ministry begins, and it's what we're going to spend all of our time today looking at, and it is temptation. And not just any temptation, temptation by the professional tempter, the devil himself. We will look at this today. We're going to see three things. There seems to be always three things. Just my way of helping you kind of work through the text. We'll see three things. The one who is tempted, the one who is tempted, temptation itself and how to resist it, and then the victor over temptation. So kind of four things, make it three. The one who is tempted, temptation and how to resist it, and then the victor over temptation. So let's look at the first. Let's look at the one who is tempted. Those first two verses that set up the whole story. Verse one, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So this is the foundation. These will be the first two verses that kind of set up this whole passage. And so I want you to see three things in this that are going to focus our eyes on what we need to see. I want, remember, Matthew's painting a portrait here. And so I want us to see what Matthew wants us to see. There's three things. Look at the first one. Math, or look at verse one again. We're going to see the intentionality of Jesus's mission. Verse one, then Jesus led up by the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? To be tempted by 
the devil. So this story that we're going to look at today is connected to the story we looked at last week, his baptism. This comes right after it. The spirit comes down, dwells on him. The father declares the reality that this is his beloved son, whom he is well pleased. And now that same spirit is going to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted, not just by anybody, but by the devil. This is deliberate. Jesus is not just moseying along, you know, going to, for his, his ministry and bumps into Satan. He's like, okay, I guess let's do this, old man or whatever. You know, they're, they're just locked in this battle. This is deliberate. The Spirit is leading him to a specific place to meet a specific person for a specific event, the temptation of the Son of the living God. So this, what we're going to look at today, isn't random. It is essential It is crucial for the mission that Jesus is on. It is essential for the reason why he came down from his heavenly throne to face temptation. That's the first thing. It's intentional. The second thing, I want you to see the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Throughout the history of the Christian church, there's two uh, heresy, there's a heresy pendulum that we swing back and forth on. The first is to deny that Jesus is God. That's kind of the first one that shows up. Arius in the third century brings that about, and then we all agree, Jesus is God, great. And then the pendulum goes like this, and now we deny that he is man, that he's truly man. He's kind of just God in a skin suit was the, the Nestorian heresy that came next. And in our day and age, we evangelicals typically err towards the second We don't say, if someone says, what do you believe about Jesus? We say, he's God in a skin suit. You wouldn't say that. But typically, when we look at passages like this, we kind of have this attitude. Well, of course he's going to, you know, defeat the devil and not be tempted by the devil. He's God. He's not dumb like Adam. He's not going to fall for these tricks. And we just kind of dismiss it. He's God. And so, of course, he's going to resist all these temptations. And when you do that, you miss the whole point of the passage. Notice what Matthew is taking time to emphasize, to shine a light on his weakness. He's hungry. He is, yes, truly, eternally, the son of the living God, but the word became flesh, truly flesh, and dwelt among us. He is truly man. He fasts 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, he's weak, and he's tired. He is going to be tempted as a man. He's not tempted in a way that's radically different from ours. He's tempted in weakness. Hebrews brings us out in Hebrews 4.15. For we, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Don't just dismiss this as, well, of course, God wouldn't fall for Satan's tricks. Matthew is highlighting his hunger, his weakness, his humanity. So see that. And then number three, see that Jesus is on a mission of perfect obedience. Again, not randomly wandering around, just waiting until he can go to the cross and die for our sins. He is living. He's on a mission to live the perfect life. Again, remember this portrait that Matthew is painting. All the hopes of the Old Testament are pointing to this man and all the failures of the Old Testament are being undone by this man. So notice a few things. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew wants you to see two key failures that Jesus is stepping into. The first one, if I say wilderness and I say 40, what do you think? Israel wandering in the wilderness. Israel being delivered from Egypt on their way to the promised land could have been a real quick journey. It's not. Why? Rebellion, complaining, hunger that makes them say, let's go back to Egypt. Let's not go into the promised land. Our God's not strong enough. There's giants in there. Let's go back to Egypt. Our food was nice in Egypt. Jesus stepping directly into that, into the failure of Israel. He's in the wilderness and he's hungry. The wilderness, the place of their greatest temptation, will be the place of Jesus' greatest temptation. The second, if I say tempted by the devil, if I say tempted by the tempter, what event do you think of besides this event? The garden. The garden. The second failure is the original failure that he's stepping into, the failure of Adam. Adam and Eve made in the image of God, put in God's beautiful garden, blessed and told, given a commission, given a mission, fill the earth and subdue it. And then right before their mission, they slam into who? The tempter. They slam into the serpent and they listen to his lies and they rebel and their entire mission unravels and they get no further In fact, their leaving of the garden wasn't to fill the earth and subdue it. It was to be kicked out of God's presence. And so here we have Jesus, the exact image of God, about to start his mission, and he's going to slam into the exact same tempter. And he's going to be told the exact same lies. He's stepping into the original temptation and the original failure of Adam. So... We're going to see in this passage how to resist temptation, but I encourage you, don't boil these 11 verses just down to pragmatic helps for shooting away lies. We will see that that is there, but ultimately what we're going to see is the event of Jesus resisting the temptations of the tempter. The focus, Matthew's focus, is on the one being tempted, This is the temptation of all temptations. There is no temptation the devil is more geared up for. He's never wanted to draw someone away from God's words more than this event. And all the hopes of the world and eternity hang on these 11 verses. If he fails here, if Jesus fails here, you and I have no hope. We no longer have a perfect sacrifice So this is no small thing. This is no wandering, bump into Satan, have a quick conversation and get on with my mission. This is not even, let's boil it down to how we're to fight temptation to be good Christians. This is an event that anything other than perfect success leaves us with no hope and no salvation. That's who is being tempted. That is who Matthew has his spotlight on and the majority of it is going to be this temptation and how to actually resist it? How does he resist it? So that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on. That's the second thing. Look at uh, verse three. We're going to see three rounds of temptation and resistance and temptation and resistance. Let's look at the first one. Verse three, and the tempter, notice his name is the tempter. The tempter came and said to him, if 
you are the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So temptation number one, what is it? Turn these rocks, turn these stones. You're hungry. It's been 40 days, no food. Turn these rocks to bread and eat them. Jesus is hungry. The tempter knows it. He seems to be starting where he seems to be weakest and just asks them to do a quick miracle. Turn this into food and eat it and satisfy your hunger. And my first question is, what's so bad about that? How is this a sin? Do you ever read this? And you're like, I don't get the problem other than the fact that it's coming out of Satan's mouth. Uh, He's going to multiply food later. He's going to eat later. And so what's what's the big deal? How is this sin? Why is this such a temptation? Let's take a closer look. Remember what has just happened. Remember the context of what has just happened. Jesus, he's on this mission to be the perfect Israel, to be the true and greater Adam, walking in perfect obedience to the Father. Right before this, the heavens have been ripped open, and the Father declares the truth, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then look at verse 3 again. If, if you are the Son. Does that sound familiar? Did God really say you couldn't eat of this tree? Did God really say if you are the Son of God? Let's see it. Let's prove it, right? Surely the Son of God has the right to satisfy his own hunger, to do a quick little miracle, turn these rocks into bread and eat them, right? Are you not very, very hungry? You haven't eaten in 40 days. You see what Satan is really doing is the same thing he did in Genesis 3, trying to get Jesus to doubt the word of God and act independently of it. The father says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Satan is saying, maybe, if you're the son of God, do this. Doubt his word and act contrary to it. It's the exact same as the garden. He didn't really say, you won't die. He knows you just want to be like him. Why don't you do this? Why don't you determine what is good and what is evil instead of letting him be the one to determine what is good and what is evil? And here, if he really said that, maybe he didn't mean it. If he really did it, prove it by you going out on your own and meeting your own needs. You see that? It's not as innocent as it looks, first of all. So we see it's not the action that would be sinful, All of you are like, don't we eat bread like every week? Have we been missing something? It's not the action that is sinful. It's the motivation behind it. It's the motivation of doubt the word of God and act on your own independent from him because he's not trustworthy. And Jesus, in perfect obedience, let's see his response. Verse four, but he, Jesus, answers, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 is what he's quoting there. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? You will not turn me away from him to do my own thing, to meet my own needs. You won't turn me away from his word with food. That's not going to work again. Why? Because my food, my true food, is every word that comes from his mouth. 
Jesus knows ultimate reality. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word out of the mouth of God. He could have said what he does say in John's gospel, John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Doubt his word. Do what will satisfy your hunger. I will never doubt his word because that is what satisfies my true hunger. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So notice, first of all, how does he resist the temptation? Over and over again, we will see today, it is written. It is written. He's going to fight the lies of the enemy, the temptation to doubt God with the truth of God. The only thing powerful enough to fight the lies of the ultimate liar is the truth of the God of all truth. That is what Jesus is going to use. That is the sword in his hand that he is going to use. Anything else is too weak. Anything else is too weak for this enemy. Notice his name is the tempter. He is your enemy with a capital E. He has one motivation. He has one goal, and that is to turn you away from the living God. He's the father of all lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. This is what he does. He's had thousands of years to hone his craft and billions of people to try it on, and he is millions of times stronger than you or me, and he hates you, and he hates me, and he hates your marriage, and he hates your joy, and he hates your God. And if you go up against him with anything except the truth of the living God, you will be wiped out like a little you know, cruddy beach house as a hurricane is approaching, you will just be wiped out if you go to him with anything except the truth of the living God. And the good news for you is you have it sitting in your lap. Notice Jesus doesn't say, in eternity past, when me and the Father were having a conversation, he told me this. What does he say? He quotes words that are in your lap. It is written in the scriptures and God's written word that all of us by his grace have. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is what you fight the lies of the ultimate liar with, the truth of the God of all truth. So notice one more thing before we move to round two, and this is so, so, so important for us to see. Notice Jesus' motivation is not just about surviving temptation. Notice He's not saying, hey, what you're tempting me towards, I know, would actually satisfy me. It's really better, but I've got to follow the rules, okay? He doesn't do that. He's saying, what you're drawing me towards may look good, but it's poison. You're drawing me towards a cliff. You're drawing me to my own death. Herein lies the difference between a legalist and someone who knows the infinite joy of knowing God and his son and his spirit. The legalist says, I know those things are better. I would rather be doing those other things, but the rules. How else am I gonna get heaven? I guess I'll go to church. I guess I'll read my Bible. I wish I could be doing all these other awesome things, but God wants me to be bored until I die, and then I guess we'll be able to fly in heaven or something like that, and it will pay off. That's the legalist. That's actually better. What I'm being tempted towards would actually satisfy my ultimate hunger, but I gotta follow these boring morals. 
And notice what Jesus is saying here. That's not real food. I live by every word from the mouth of God. The child of the living God knows that is sand in my mouth. That isn't real food. He has the ultimate joy and pleasure that truly satisfies. It's in him and him alone. That's why I read my Bible. Because my life is hidden with him. He is why I wake up in the morning. That's why I go to church, because I want my eyes lifted to his glory so that I can live. That's the difference. And if you don't see that, you will live a boring life, and you will miss what all that boring life was about because you've never actually gotten to the core of Christianity, which is him. Don't just follow the rules to get stuff from God. He is what satisfies. Don't miss that in round one. That is round one. Satan, if you're the son, step out of his word. Use your own power to meet your needs. Jesus says, my needs are met by his words. Why would I step away from the only thing that satisfies? Round two. Satan is going to say, okay, you like God's words? Let me quote a few for you. Notice Satan's strategies here. Verse five, then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if, there it is again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you, fi- uh, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So there's a second temptation. Throw yourself down, angels will catch you. How do I know? That word that you love and live by. Okay, takes him to a high place, quotes Psalm 91. Okay, it's not just a made-up thing that he's lying about being scripture. He actually quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. And so I ask again, what's so wrong with this? What's wrong with throwing yourself down and angels catching you? He's quoting the Bible. We'll see at the end of this passage, angels are going to minister to him. So angels interacting with Jesus apparently isn't so Bad, what's so wrong with this passage? Again, let's look a bit closer. We see again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And he promises, right? That one who said, this is my beloved son in whom I well please, he'll save you. In other words, what Satan is saying is, do a spectacular, pointless miracle that forces him to prove that his word is true. Throw yourself down for no other reason than to make him catch you. He says he will make him do it. Again, you force him. Notice who's in the driver's seat in this theoretical situation. Jesus, you throw yourself down, back God into a corner where he has to keep his word because he cannot lie, and so he must save you, right? So before we move on to Jesus' counter, notice the exhausting craftiness of the devil, the exhausting craftiness of our enemy. We do not want to be ignorant to his schemes. Look at him. He is so slippery, right? You defeat him here. He doesn't say, shucks, you've bested me. He jumps to the other side. He says, okay, yes, you live by that word. That's great. Let me pull you this way. If you're a legalist and you finally overcome that, he's going to tempt you, try to pull you to abuse grace. If you've abused grace your whole life and you finally stop, he's going to pull you into self-righteousness, draw you this way. Look, you've finally gotten it. Look at all these others who don't. 
Why can't they just get it? You got it, right? He's always, always, always slippery, crafty. He appears, the scriptures tell us, as an angel of light. You're hungry. I've got a solution. You can do miracles. Just eat this food. That looks like a good thing. He appears as an angel of light. His false teaching scratches our itching ears. Don't be ignorant to the evil brilliance of our enemy who never gets tired and is always waiting to jump on the other side. So he tempts Jesus using scripture, this word that he lives by to try and put God in a corner and force God to act to save him. Jesus says this, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. So Satan again saying, you make God bend to your will. You make him show that he loves you. You make him prove that what he said about you at your baptism is actually true. See if he saves you. You make him prove that his words in Psalm 91 are true, that he won't let your foot strike a stone, and Jesus will have none of it. Jesus says, here's what I know. Here's the truth that I know. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. His words, Jesus is saying, basically Jesus is saying, his word is glorious and trustworthy, not because he proves it, or not because he appeases our weak trust in him. Rather, his word is true simply because it came out of the mouth of the one who is infinitely trustworthy. And that's what Jesus is saying. I will not test him why I have no need to. I need no proof. The very fact that these words came out of his mouth means they're true because he is the God of all truth. Truth, the truth of God isn't some floating abstract ball with like godly characteristics to it. You have a living God who says stuff. And because he is the one saying it, it is trustworthy. That's what Jesus is pointing to. I need no proof. Why would I need any proof? He's the one who says it. Therefore, it is infinitely trustworthy. So he shows us two beautiful things. Number one, the devil's quotation of scripture is clearly twisting truth, using truth for the purposes of lies. It is so important for you to see citing scripture at the end of rants does nothing to bolster your argument any closer to truth. Study church history. Every heretic in the history of the church quotes the Bible. Every false teacher in the Old Testament says, thus says the Lord. We don't need to worry about Babylon. We're doing great. Everyone, including the devil, every Pharisee will see, they're all quoting the Bible. What matters isn't quoting the Bible. What matters is understanding the meaning of the God who said the Bible. And Satan is twisting the meaning to try and tempt Jesus. Jesus is exposing that. The second thing Jesus is showing us is that our circumstances are not what proves the truth of God's word or his love for you. Again, rather the fact that he said it is what proves that it is trustworthy and that he loves you. And the difficulty for us is going to be we will have circumstances in this life where where there is no logical way back up to God's goodness. Something will happen and you will say, I've thought of 
every possibility that my brain can think of, I do not see one where this gets back to a good and loving God. Explain that to me. And in those moments, you still need to say, but he's good. Joseph has these dreams. Everyone's going to bow down to him. Gets beat up by his family, sold into slavery, and he's, he's in prison. Now we get to read three chapters ahead, and oh yeah, but he's the ruler of Egypt. Imagine two years sitting in a prison thinking, what? I guess that was, I shouldn't put that much trust in dreams because that clearly isn't happening. Look at me. Nothing could be worse. There's no way to get back to God's goodness. Now, we know the story keeps going. He's brought out of prison. He's saving the world from this horrible fast. Now, there will be situations where you have no way to get back to God's goodness until your death and until he tells you. And so this side of eternity, we must somehow hold the truth with all of our might. For those who love him, God works all things together for good according to his purposes. You have to throw yourself into his trustworthiness, into his character. Uh, There's a professor at Westminster Seminary named uh, Jonathan Gibson, who's written a lot of books. He's a a great author uh, and uh, one of his books is actually a, a kid's book uh, that's a story about him, his own life. He, him and his wife had a three-year-old son named Ben who loved to look at the moon. And so they would hold him up at night and he would look at the moon and Jonathan, his father, would ask him, what, what shape is the moon? Uh, and he would say, oh, it's a crescent moon or a half moon or three quarters, whatever it was. And then Jonathan would ask him, what shape is the moon always? And his son would say, the moon is always round. No matter what I see, the moon is always round. And Jonathan would say, what does that mean, Ben? And he would say, God is always good. He taught him to say that. Even when you can't see it, it was just a way to point his eyes to it. And uh, six months after kind of he started doing that, his son's three, three and a half, and his wife was pregnant with a daughter named Layla. And at 39 weeks, uh, something went wrong, and then the baby's heart stopped beating, and she was stillborn. Um, and so they uh, took, they went to go to the hospital, delivered the baby, and, and uh, Jonathan took Ben to go see Layla's sister, and uh, his, his wife stayed there, and, and Jonathan was driving home with Ben, three and a half in the car, and Ben asked him, Ben was in the back seat, and asked him, is Layla not coming home with us? Why isn't she coming home? And Jonathan said, well, Jesus called her name, and so she went to him, and Ben said, well, after she's with Jesus for a few days, will she come back? to us. And Jonathan said, no, when Jesus calls your name, you never want to leave him. We're going to have to go to them someday. And then Ben, you know, he's three and said, why isn't she coming? And didn't really understand. And, and Jonathan said, I don't, I don't know, son. I don't know, Ben. But do you remember what shape the moon is? And he said, the moon is always round. He said, what does that mean? He said, it means God is always good. And he just explained to Ben, I I don't know. I don't know why uh, the Lord did this, but we know that he has his reasons and that he's good in the midst of it. And you think of that story, and it's hard to get there. How do you get back to God's goodness, yet the reality stays the same? The moon is always round. And Jonathan said he put Ben to bed, and he actually went and looked, and it was a half moon, and thought, you know, this is a good representation. I can, I can see a little bit, I guess, conceivably, theologically, how God could be sovereign over this, but I can't, I can't see. In the midst of all this pain, I can't see this, but I know that God is 
always good. And this side of eternity, that's what it's like a lot of the time. We have to trust his words simply by the fact that he said it. And we know that he is infinitely loving and infinitely good. And one day you will see. One day, worst case scenario, he will take you by the hand and he will wipe away your tears from your face. And he'll show you. He'll show you face to face his goodness. What you can't possibly fathom now. He will show you. That's what Jesus, the eternal son, is pointing us towards. I have no reason to doubt his character because he's the God of all goodness and the God of all love, even when my eyes can't see it, when my circumstances don't display it. So notice here what Jesus isn't saying. Again, I know the legalist rears up in our hearts. Jesus is not saying Don't test God because he's going to get mad. He's not saying, "Uh, Israel, they tested God, and he, like, opened up the ground and swallowed a whole bunch of people, and, like, lightning's coming. I mean, it got crazy. I'm not going to do that, okay? He's going to get real mad. He's always waiting just to wipe us out anytime we mess up, right? Notice he's not saying that. Jesus is saying, the eternal son, think about it, who's been eternally with the Father, We see this picture of eternity past in John 17 when Jesus is praying to the Father and let them love with the love that we have shared before the foundation of the world. You get this glimpse of the Son and the Father's glorious communion and now the Son here is saying, if you only knew who it is that says it, you would never doubt. You would never need circumstances to prove it to you. I've got two kids, and you know, the, Harvey's now at the age where yeah, you tell him to do something, and he just, why? And you got to explain your reasoning behind it. And so me, imagining him as like a 12-year-old, I don't know, I always sit him down, he's two, and I'm like, hey, buddy, I just, I want you to know, everything I say always and everything your mom says is because we love you more than you could ever know, and we want your life to be as blessed as possible. Everything we do is for your good. Okay, so quit asking, right? <laughs> right? That's, I mean, that is our heart. Now, we know, yes, obviously, sinful. Be quiet. Just do what I say, right? Sinful. There's one father who's not sinful. There's one father who everything he says has no sinful motivation, and that's who Jesus is pointing to. I will never doubt, and I will never ask him to prove by my experience that his word is true. If you only knew the one saying it, you would never doubt. I will not put the, Lord's to the, te- the Lord to the test. I will trust in him because he is trustworthy, even in the deepest possible pain. Round two, Jesus. He's, he's two for two. Round three. Round three. So Satan, again, tempting him. If you're the son, throw yourself down. Make him prove it to you. Jesus, there's no need. He's already said to me, You are my son, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, and I trust him. I will not test him. Round three, we see the devil's strategy pivot a bit, change a little bit. No more if you are the son of God. Rather, he just goes straight for the jugular and the heart of everything, worship. Right after the center of all things, worship. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. So there's the temptation. Bow down. I'll give you 
the world. Now, this is probably the first temptation just on, on reading it that you say, boom, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. You're like, bread and rocks, I get it. I, don't, I, I, I guess it's bad because Satan's saying it. This, you're like, no, no, I see that one. Real bad. And so it seems obvious to us, which makes us think, boom, easy to resist. The devil showed his hand. And it's like, aha, you're no longer crafty. Now, that would be a mistake. Again, we have a tendency to be a little Gnostic or Platonic where we separate the physical from the spiritual. And so we think, why would Jesus want earthly kingdoms? You know, that's worthless anyway, right? Now, I would remind you of the bookends of your scriptures. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth not the heavens, and then a bunch of bad stuff somehow spilled out everywhere, all that physical stuff. The heavens and the earth, they come from him. They're all his, and then how it's going to end. Revelation 21, one through three. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. What? We're not going to heaven, and then that's the end of the story? No, a new heaven and a new Earth, the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, notice the order here, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he shall dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be there God, Jesus has not come to redeem your soul and sweep everything else out into the trash bin. Jesus is coming to redeem what was delivered over in Genesis 3, the heavens and the earth, the kingdoms of the world. He is coming to redeem. What does he pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth meeting again is what we will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. What Satan is tempting Jesus with here is what was lost in the garden. All that Adam and Eve were meant to take dominion over and rule as those made in the image of God for his glorious name, and they deliver it over to the serpent to be ruled in the name of the serpent. How can Satan offer that in the first place? Because they're his. They've been given over by Adam and Eve. So this would have been a temptation. Here it is. I'll give it all to you. I'll give it back. What was, what was broken in the garden, I'll give it right back to you, except one thing. You can rule it all. You can do whatever you want, but you will not rule it in his name. You will rule it in my name. A bridge too far, some might say. And Jesus says, verse 10, Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, there it is again, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This comes right after, he's quoting Deuteronomy uh, 6.13, which comes after the very famous, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He could have said what he later will say, in Matthew 16, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What would it profit me to gain all the kingdoms of the world and rule it not in the name of my father? Be gone, Satan. I have one that I worship. 
if worship and glory and the adoration of God are not at the center of your life, nothing else matters. That is why you exist. The Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end? Why were we created? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And for Jesus to leave that out, the worship of God would be to leave everything out. So that is the end of that. Be gone, Satan. I have one and one only whom I worship and whom I live for. So that is the end. Third round, Jesus, three for three, total victory. And then verse 11, kind of the end of the story, Satan leaves. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan leaves because if you lose the worship battle, nothing else matters. So he's done. There's nothing else to tempt him for and angels attend to him. So that's the end of the story. That's the end of the temptation and the resistance of temptation. But there's one more thing I want to actually bring out of the story. It would be a mistake, as I've said a a few times, it would be a mistake to just boil this down to kind of pragmatic ways for us to resist temptation, although that's there. Jesus does resist temptation. He resists it, notice, in a way that you can resist it using God's word. But the most important thing about this story isn't pragmatic help. It's that Jesus stepped in to our failure and was successful. He steps in to where Israel failed. He goes out into the wilderness, and when he's hungry, he doesn't complain. He doesn't test God and say, let's go back to Egypt. He says, I feast on his word. When his circumstances look grim, he doesn't question God's goodness and turn back. There's giants in that land. It doesn't look like God's going to be able to come through. He says, I will not test my good and trustworthy father. And when he's in the wilderness, he doesn't worship a golden calf and say, behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. He says, I will worship the Lord alone and serve him alone. He succeeds where Israel fails. And he also succeeds where Adam fails. He doesn't turn away because of food. He trusts God's word as his food. He doesn't take things into his own hands and try to make God submit to him. I'll say what's good and what's evil, and God can follow my lead. Rather, he trusts the word of God, and he doesn't bow down to the serpent. He says what Adam should have said, be gone. We worship one God and serve him alone. So why is that so important? Is that just a a fact about Jesus, this guy that we call our Savior? Why is that so important? Remember, he is on a mission of redemption, and who is he coming to redeem? You and me. Children of Adam. Children of the failure who follow his lead. And if typically you ask, why did Jesus come? Uh, You get an answer most of the time that says something like, you know, he came to die on the cross for our sins, which is part of it, but only part of it because his death, it's not just that his death is given for you, but rather when he was raised victorious, his perfect life is also given to you. When Jesus brings you to himself, he takes all your failure, all your sin, all your wickedness, and takes it all and pays for it on the cross. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives you all his success 
All that is his, all of his perfection and all of his righteousness is now poured out on you. All that is in him, he gives to you. Or to say it another way, when he wins in this passage, when he's resisting temptation, he's resisting it on your behalf. So now that his success is your success. When the father looks down on you, it's as if you lived the perfect life that he lived. All of his medals are pinned to your chest. His diplomas hang on your wall. His trophies are on your mantle. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You aren't just pardoned. Don't stop halfway through the gospel. He pours out his life and all that is in him on you. The moment you become a Christian, everything that is his is yours because he is all yours. You've been united to him. You're in Christ, Paul's favorite saying. See it all over the place. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's yours. Now the father looks down on you and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased, which means every failure you've ever had, every sin you walk in, every time you snap at your kids, every time you say something that you shouldn't have said or look at something that you shouldn't have looked at or had a wicked thought in your heart, yes, repent, of course, repent, but then look up at the one who never failed and know that his success is given to you. You are in Christ, or as Paul would say in Colossians, your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. His perfect life is given to you. I used to uh, listen to a, a preacher named Leonard Ravenhill all the time, and I love, he's, he's very dead, uh, but I love him. Uh, he uh, taught me how to pray, and he's very passionate, which is why I loved him back then, uh, but he, poor Leonard, was a horrible uh, theologian, and he said one time in a sermon, in Malachi, he talks about God has a book of remembrance, and every night before you go to bed, you ask God, what did he write in his book about your day that day? And he meant it as, quit screwing up, God's watching, okay? And I just think, oh, oh Leonard, ha- what a horrible, what an anti-gospel, what a, what a horrible way to live As a Christian, every night when you go to bed, you go to bed in Christ. When the Father looks down on you, he doesn't see all your failure. He sees his son's success. Yes, when you go to bed, you could do this. I'm always telling you to do stuff before you go to bed. Uh, So you're running out of things. You're like, I'm supposed to pray this. I'm supposed to recite this psalm. Every tech, I'm like, when you go to bed. So here's another one. When you go to sleep at night, think through your day. Think through the failures, think through the success, think through the opportunities you didn't take, and then hear these, repent if you need to, again, I need to say that, and then hear the words whispered in your ear, it is finished. I never failed. I resisted every temptation. I took every opportunity. I never snapped, sinfully. He flipped some tables. Uh, We'll see that later, sinfully. My perfect life is yours, and I drew you to myself. You are in Christ, and you go to sleep in his gracious and loving arms. That's what you should hear in your ears. God's book of remembrance in Malachi, Leonard's horribly misinterpreting that passage, 
God's book of remembrance has his son's perfect life and all those who are in Christ, which is you if you are a Christian. That's what I want you to see here. His perfect life isn't just an event. It's given to you. And then one more thing. The Father sees you as perfect. His righteousness is credited to you. Jesus' righteousness is given to you. But this side of eternity, we're still falling all the time. We're simultaneously justified and sinners. And so this side of eternity, we are meant to live in light of his perfect life. We're not perfect yet, right? That happens at glory. But this side of eternity, if we've been made a new creation, we're meant to live in light of his perfect life. I think Paul puts it best when he says it this way in Galatians 2.20, talking about himself. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, this side of eternity, this side, still sinning, still falling to temptation, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what I want to say to you. Don't look back to yourself. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your eyes will. You'll be tempted to look back. How you do this in your own strength. Look how much you failed. I think actually Leonard is joining in with the tempter's lies. Look here. Don't look here. And Paul would say, oh, no, don't you ever do that. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you look here, you have two options. If you look to your own efforts, pride in your success and despair in your failure. If you look here, it's the only way that you can be humble and grateful and overjoyed in success and comforted in your failure. The only way, by looking to him, not looking back to yourself. There is joy and there is freedom in living the way Paul is commending us to live. Which, by the way, if you actually read his life, he like, seems like the untouchable man. He talks about, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like win-win, right? And how does he do that? You persecute him, he rejoices. He's beaten in the, the Philippi jail and he's singing hymns, right? What has happened to this man where he could live this way? And he would tell us, he does tell us in the most famous out of context verse ever, tattooed on the chest of every athlete who can score more touchdowns because I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ, through him who gives me strength, who is my strength. So I read uh, Hebrews 4, a middle verse earlier, 15. I want to read a bit more of it as we're wrapping up. Jesus, the victor over temptation. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way or in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, what's the result of that beautiful, perfect life of that great high priest? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. So I, I, I end this sermon where I feel like I've been ending every sermon, which is just to say what a Savior that we have in Jesus who enters in, succeeds where Israel fails, and takes the punishment for Israel's failure. He succeeds where Adam failed and takes the punishment for Adam's failure, succeeds where you have failed and where I have failed, and takes the punishment, the infinite punishment, for our failure and pours out on us the unthinkable riches of his life. And no one will snatch you from his hand. You have been united to him. You have been brought to him. What a savior we have been brought to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this son. In John 3.16 As you so love the world, you send your son, you have all of this in mind. And so I thank you that you sent the perfect mediator, the perfect man, the true and better Adam, who succeeds where we fail. And in our failure now, we don't get resaved every time. We can look to his success. He looked forward to see us and saw our wickedness while we were still sinners Christ died for us. There's no sin that shocks you. There's nothing that you weren't expecting. There's no, oh, I didn't know they were going to do that. I thank you that that is who you are, that your grace, when we stare at your son in the face, when we see reality, the reality of his grace, we're just left speechless. And so I pray that we would behold him and love him and live in light of him In him we live and move and have our being. I pray that we would and that we would see the lies of the tempter for what they are, poison, things that want to rob us of our joy and we would not fall into the lie that thinks this is actually better but actually no because we know you. I know the one in whom every satisfaction rests. I know the one who is the source of all joy. Let that be how we fight temptation, looking to the truth of your word and what you declare about yourself. We praise you and pray in your son's glorious name. Amen.